0: to The Artist's Creed. I'm Steve Guthrie, Professor of Theology and the Arts at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. The Artist's Creed is a conversation about Christianity, creativity, and the arts. And the venue we've chosen for that conversation is the Apostles' Creed, an expression of the Christian faith with roots in the worship and proclamation of the early church. we saying when we say, I believe? What kind of thing is belief? And in particular, what does it mean to believe in God? There's some paradox there. On the one hand, to say I believe in God is an affirmation. It's not just a question. But in pointing toward God, we're also gesturing toward one that we must know is always beyond our apprehension, always beyond all of our saying and affirmation. In the same way, when we speak of God, we want to say, at least at some level, that we're speaking of the God who has met us, who has encountered us, who's made himself known to us. But on the other hand, when we speak of God, we're also speaking of one who is hidden from us, who remains a mystery, who sometimes seems silent and distant, whom we long to see face to face. So these tensions show up in the ways Christian theologians talk about God. Theologians, for instance, speak about both apophatic and cataphatic theology. Apophatic theology is sometimes called the via negativa, or the way of negation. It's theology that places greater emphasis on God's mystery, and it proceeds by way of saying what God is not. So, for instance, we say that God is immortal, which is simply a way of saying what God is not, not mortal cataphatic theology, on the other hand, draws attention to those things God has revealed about himself. So we want to say not only that God is not certain things, not mortal, we also want to say things about who God is, how God is. God is love, God is just, God is wise, and so on. Likewise, I mentioned there is a sense in which God has met us, and yet remains beyond us. So Christian theology also acknowledges the beyondness or otherness of God, and it uses uh, a term called transcendence to talk about this otherness. Right alongside that, Christians affirm the nearness of God and his active involvement with us. A term that's used for this is God's imminence. So all of that is to say, even though the statement, I believe in God, is grammatically simple. There's a lot of complexity and nuance built into it. We're speaking of one who exceeds what can be said and acknowledging the closeness and presence of one who often seems distant and absent. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Donovan Maccabee, who is both an associate professor of religion at Belmont University and is also a published poet. His own poetry deals with religious themes as does the poetry of Charles Simic, a poet Donovan has studied and written about. In particular, a lot of the themes that we've been talking about come up in our conversation. Knowledge and mystery, humility and receptivity, the power and the limits of words and images, and the ways in which poetry may open up space, both for encountering God and for coming to terms with suffering in a way that systematic theology cannot. The first time I heard Charles Simic's name, Mm -hmm. actually the first time I said his name, I said Simic, and you said, Mm -hmm. no, it's Simic. But um, I had not heard of him before I met you, but Mm -hmm. that's who you focused on in your your doctoral Mm -hmm. thesis. So give me a little bit of background information about Charles Simic, who he is.
1: Well, your your initial... um instinct that it was Simic would have been correct in some ways. He was born and actually, I, I've never looked this up, but it's D-U and it's S with a diacritical mark over it. I don't know if it's Dusan or Dusan. I should know that actually. Huh. But he was born Dusan Simic huh. uh, 1938 in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. Okay. Uh, and so I had said Simic when I first saw it because yeah. you think it's a Serbian name. Um, but I got to interview him in 2007 and he corrected me when I said Simic. And obviously, having read him and started my dissertation I should have known how to pronounce his name by that point but he's wow. very gracious. Yeah. But well, when he he came to the states in 50 1953 okay. as a Yugoslavian refugee huh. um, and took the name Charles Simic instead of Dusan. He came with his mother and his younger brother. His Hmm. father had made it over shortly after the war. So he experienced World War II as a child in Belgrade. World War II was terrible uh, on that country. But then there was uh, civil war, essentially, and Mm -hmm. then the Stalinist takeover Mm -hmm. of Eastern Europe. Right. So uh, Charles Simic's Childhood was just the story of war and and dislocation, essentially. Right. But I mean, even he says in some interviews, having the having the childhood I had yeah. and the early experiences of youth, where uh, the impossible became possible, yeah. where tragedy and chance and history converged in such a horrible way on Europe at that point. And he said, yeah. "It's it's it's probably evident the kind of poems I was destined to write."
0: Totally. Well, <laughs> I was just going to say. I mean, I've only I think. You said sent me four or five poems yeah. of his that I read, but you know there is a you know uh, this kind of God-forsakenness, mm-hmm. um, this awareness of sort of the horrors of yeah. of the world and the horrors of war. There's allusions to torture and mm-hmm. prisoners of war, and yeah. so that's something that very much emerges from from his own experience.
1: There's a real humanity of his poetry that hmm. tries to give voice to the victim, yeah, uh, in a way that comes through in his even even in his late work uh, and mm. maybe even more clearly in his late work than some of his early but
0: so say a little bit about his writing career um, does he pursue a career as a poet you know from from the outset or is that something that he comes to later
1: well it's funny he he started I mean, it's fascinating to me to think this man who was born in 1938 in Belgrade you what was then Yugoslavia yeah. you know um, becomes poet laureate of the United States oh wow. <laughs> And in, in not his first language, obviously. Yeah. Not his second, not his huh. third, but in his fourth language.
0: Wow. Yeah. So he's
1: growing up speaking Serbian. It's sometimes called Serbo-Croatian. It's sometimes called... Um, um, Macedonian. like There are four, four, three or four different names for this, given the ethnic <laughs> yeah. conflicts around this you know, right. this language group. Right. But he's speaking Serbian. The Russians take over, and so he's taught Russian at school. Mm. And then he lives in Paris for a year and goes to school and learns French. Wow. And then he moves to America at the age of 15 and is thrown into an American high school. Mm-hmm. And so his poetry is always very visually driven, mm. and that's sometimes a compliment and sometimes a critique of his poems. That's interesting. Um, but yeah. early on, he says his some of his friends would even say, these these are just images strung together, and they don't make any sense. But for him, he was always fascinated with the visual and language, yeah. uh, the visual in poetry. And mm-hmm. it's it's kind of interesting when you think about someone becoming a poet in their fourth language. Oh yeah, their facility with the language it, it, it will have a different sound than than the than the, 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 the native speaker would. Sure. And so it would be. It kind of makes sense. He's drawn to images yeah, sometimes exactly. more than sounds. Right. Um, what's interesting to me is when you think about those first poems are published in Chicago Review. Uh, there are certain phrases hmm. that a native speaker wouldn't use. There's uh, there's one or two phrases where. Uh, an indefinite article would be used by a native speaker. It's not by him. Yeah. And so it almost gives the language of the piece a foreign feel.
0: That's interesting. Yeah.
1: And um, obviously he's a master with the language, but, um, but I think he probably was drawn to certain strategies that played to his strengths, uh, you know, uh, as well.
0: A lot of people don't read poetry because they feel puzzled by it or Mm -hmm. even feel stupid. Like I'm not going to know how to, how to figure this out. Um, and so I'm interested as a matter of strategy, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who who doesn't know poetry or literature, how should I approach a poem like that or a, a poem by um, an author I haven't encountered before? Mm. Is there a good way for the neophyte in mm-hmm. or do you need a course in poetry to know how to read poetry?
1: Lord, I hope not. Yeah. You know, more of my training early on was how to read the bible huh. you know and i mean it's kind of strange that i did a phd in english in some ways hmm. um but the way i read is informed probably by those practices i learned in reading sacred scripture hmm. on some level and i I can speak the language of certain theoretical schools and literature. I understand more of that now. Yeah. But God, if I thought you had to take a course in poetry to read a poem, that would be a depressing thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think when it comes to poetry, the question I always start with is almost like a reader response question is, mm. how does the poem make you feel? <laughs> I mean, mm. like, just to break it down, um, to, to me, poems are conversation partners. Hmm. Poems are invitations. Poems are prayers. Hmm. But they're to engage with a living, breathing human, hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and that informs the aesthetic with which I write my own poetry and the aesthetic with which I enjoy the authors that I choose, you know? Yeah. I have a good friend who I love very dearly in yeah. Britain, and um, he's, he's becoming a somewhat more known poet now. He's yeah. almost won some really big prizes but we were over there last year with I was over there with my wife and and our little boy, and his his book was was coming out, getting yeah. ready to come out, and and she begins to ask him about his poetry, and he said, "Oh gosh, you don't want to hear about that. It's it's nothing you would in, enjoy reading." <laughs> and I've read his book, and I know what he yeah. means. Yeah. Um, and and it's like God, yeah. why, why would you write it then? I want to ask right. him. Right, and this yeah. is someone I love. Yeah, and when you read when I read his work, it is an intellectual exercise. Huh. He's got deep etymologies with puns going yeah. on from wordplay from the seventeenth century to now. Yeah. He's because he's he's primarily um he's primarily a, a lit scholar of Shakespearean era. Right, right, you know, right. um. Uh, so uh, in the renaissance period in general and and that comes into his writing practice and that's just not Mm. the kind of poetry i tend to be drawn to yeah and um so i don't think poems are there to be decoded like math problems does a poem have to
0: be inaccessible at a certain level does a poem have to be difficult to be a good poem um or if it doesn't have to be difficult what what does it have to have that like the the bit of doggerel, you know, the da-da-da-da-da-da mm-hmm. doesn't I th- have.
1: I think any great work of literature or art has to have a tension that is worth engaging with. Hmm. And if that tension is is um, artificially or aesthetically manufactured, difficulty for difficulty's sake, yeah. I'm not interested in that. Right, right. If okay. the tension is a very real tension yeah. that is being brought forth in a work, I'm willing to wrestle with that piece of work, yeah. and with the author that made it. Yeah. Um, so I think Cynic's difficulty isn't a manufactured difficulty, in his best poems, isn't a manufactured difficulty, yeah. but it is a real struggling with the nature of knowledge, the yeah. nature of um, life in a God-filled or a godless universe, um, the nature of fate or chance or what we do with those things. Yeah. Uh, so, so to me, the struggle has to be real and given voice. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I just think there has to be a worthy tension there yeah. for a work of art to be worth the time to be engaged right, with. Yeah, right.
0: that's good. Yeah. Um, I yeah, as I was thinking about this earlier, I um, it occurred to me that sometimes when I read poetry, when mm-hmm. I read poetry that's difficult, mm-hmm. I think okay, do you want me to understand you or not? Okay. Um, Do you want me to read this or not? And if you want me to read it, then why don't you just say what you mean in a way that I can understand? And then it occurred to me how often I've prayed prayers like that. Yeah. That God, do you want me to hear you or to follow you or to know you or not? And if you do, why don't you just speak plainly? Yeah. So what I had occurred what occurred to me then was I wonder if that's something of what Simic is is doing. I mean he's in many of these poems that you've sent to me, he's talking about um, you know, I don't know, wanting to see God, but you know, this sense of God's absence and yet hints of his presence mm-hmm. and why don't you just say something? yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wondered um, if poets are obscure or hard to understand for the same reason that God is obscure. Or hard to understand. You
1: know what I mean? Intricacies just for intricacies. I'm not drawn to. Yeah. So I don't feel like these are puzzles. Yeah. I don't feel like Simic's best poems are just puzzles that are put together to baffle the reader. Now, well, might they be works of art that are put together to articulate the experience of being baffled? Yeah. Yeah. There's something about spiritual writers that articulate mis- the, articulate you towards mystery yeah. or articulate confusion that, to me, feels more um, authentic to my experience of spirituality, I suppose, or right. my experience with God. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good. Well, when you said, too, earlier about um, a communicative act, mm-hmm. I mean, it occurred to me that both the poem that doesn't give anything away Mm-hmm. That's written for the poet himself, mm-hmm. or the poem that gives everything away. Yes, that that neither of those is a communicative act, right? That, yeah. So that by saying some things, but then kind of allowing a space for you to come in and work and mm-hmm. um, engage with the imagery, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not uh, I'm not just handing everything to you, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm inviting you to do part of the work of the poem. Yes. That, that then makes it a communicative act, right? Yes. Rather than being one-sided on on this side or that. Well, why don't we, why don't we um, go ahead and if you could read a letter again. Oh yeah. You mentioned that um, you know this poem um, has been one that was arresting for you, um, mm-hmm. and would be interested to hear what it is about this poem that that draws you to it or that you've found so. Sweet. So point All right.
1: Yeah. A letter. Dear philosophers, I get sad when I think. Is it the same with you? Just as I'm about to sink my teeth into the noumenon, some old girlfriend comes to distract me. She's not even alive, I yell to the skies. The wintry light made me go that way. I saw beds covered with identical gray blankets. I saw grim looking men holding a naked woman while they hosed her with cold water. Was that to calm her nerves or was it punishment? I went to visit my friend Bob who said to me, we reached the real by overcoming the seduction of images. I was overjoyed until I realized such abstinence will never be possible for me. I caught myself looking out the window. Bob's father was taking their dog for a walk. He moved with pain. The dog waited for him. There was no one else in the park, only bare trees with an infinity of tragic shapes to make thinking difficult. So tell me a little bit about what you
0: like about that poem or <clears throat> what you find moving about it. I don't know what kind, how you'd like to characterize what it is that it does for you. But.
1: I think it captures that struggle with what do we know and what do we understand by what we see. I think it captures the notion that uh, a lot of our thinking is predicated on what's happened to us before, mm. and 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 certain things obsess us. And I think it captures a certain form of mystical urge to see through things to the real things, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and it captures the frustration of that, or the frustrating of that. Um, uh, in experience one of the things I love about Simic is that he can be deadly serious with a snicker at the same time yeah you know and you see that in his poems about war um, he's got one called Cameo Appearance that's about um, basically the setting is the speakers telling his grandkids about how he uh, you know he was one of the mass of humanity right with the dictator you know up front and right. like the, um, he used to joke that his uh, he saw the world because his um his tour, his tour guides were Hitler and Stalin because <laughs> they set his family on the traveling, you know, right. onto traveling yeah. to see in the world. Um, but, you know, growing up, growing up a, a religious kid in the South in a context that was evangelical slash fundamentalist, really, hmm. um, my context, um, I was an earnest religious kid. You yeah. know, I want to know reality as it is. Yeah. And, and I want to know God as God is, and yeah. uh, all, and and so just that playful third line, just as I'm about to sink my teeth into the noumenon, you know, right, yeah. uh, Kant's noumenon, the, the the sort of the essential of things, yeah. Um, uh, it, that that move is always frustrated, but the fact that he talks about it as though it's an apple, I mean, his use his use of language there is hmm. is um, it seems flippant, but it's an, actually a pretty deft use of. Um, uh, metaphor, like as though the noumenon were an apple that you could sink your teeth into to begin with. Yeah. But then it talks about that being frustrated by thinking about an, a girlfriend who's not even alive anymore. Mm-hmm. And then that image of the of the woman is she being cared for? Or is she being punished? And 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 that's almost like an image of war or torture that that seems yeah. to haunt the speaker's mind. Yeah. Um, uh, and and the idea we reach the real by overcoming the seduction of images, and him saying I could never. Um, never give up that, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, so you mentioned apophatic theology, which is yeah. a negative theology that's saying what God is not, mm-hmm. right? So even even words like immortal or invisible mm-hmm. are apophatic terms. So we're mm-hmm. saying God is not visible. We're mm-hmm. not saying what it means to be invisible, just that we know what it is to be visible and God's not that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is, um, you know, what's the difference between um, apophatic theology or doing negative theology and articulating a sense of God's absence? So, do we have apophaticism here or just a sense of God's absence um, or even God's inaccessibility? Hmm. I mean, it seems like there's a difference, too, between…
1: Well, inaccessibility would seem to be an apophatic term or not?
0: I don't know if it is. I mean, mm. the the mystics, yeah. the goal isn't uh, – the, the point isn't that we're acknowledging that we can't access God. No, the point right. is union with God. Yeah. But that we achieve union with God by abandoning any attempt to mm. rein God in or confine God within our categories. Mm-hmm. But there's still the sense of – you know, meeting God in that mm-hmm. dark cloud. For Simic is is the goal to kind of free God from the constraints of our con- conceptuality, our language, or is it just this experience of God forsakenness or God where are you? Or we can never I mean I think I mean it, I mean, it does seem like there's a distinction, right, between agnosticism.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: don't know whether or not there is mm-hmm. Anything out there and apatheticism. What's out there mm. can't be contained in my words and concepts.
1: I feel, uh, I feel both in his work yeah. almost, and I think I tried to say it in that essay. Mm. When I read his work, you get a sense. So uh, when you go you, when you go into a, an Orthodox place of worship, yeah, you often see, um, often a Pantocrator, yeah. or some version of of the Godhead or so at the top of the cathedral. Yeah, And I really do feel like Simic's Cathedral would have fascinating images and that the eye would then be drawn up towards the ceiling, but instead of an image of God, you would see a big hole. Yeah, And so I feel like mm. his is an agnostic theology that proceeds primarily via an apophatic – I don't want to call it a methodology, but an apophatic um, intuition. Uh-huh. maybe, Apoph- apophatic, um, sort of bent yeah. to his experience. His poem, Obscurely Occupied, is fascinating to me because when you think yeah. of the notion of presence and absence, where along that spectrum does occupation happen? Yeah, And it's a word that he's using theologically, but that is also used politically. Yeah. And, and a person who has grown up in an occupied territory, an occupied country, as Simic did. Heck, as Jesus did. Uh, there's there's a political uh, implications to that word and uh, a, a theological in that poem. And what's weird in that poem to me is it seems to want Christ to be there, and it even calls Christ Lord of the maimed. Yeah. It never calls Christ Christ, but that's who it's clearly yeah. talking about. And, and yet it also shows the way that religion has been implicated in the violence of these wars yeah uh, so that poem is doing so many almost impossible things to try to untangle but at, at its root I do feel like like to me Lord of the maimed is attempting to recognize Christ's identification with the weak yeah while also the poem recognizes right. the symbol of Christianity as being implicated in the oppression from the ones in power
0: yeah this suggestion that christ is right is present with the sufferer is mm-hmm. present with the victim you know themes you get from a lot of contemporary theologians jürgen Moltmann. you know the crucified god yes that jesus is there hanging on the gallows with the innocent victim but then um you know, the end of the poem is about how then Christ has to run back through the snow, yes. right, to get back to the, the cross which has been abandoned. So it's almost as if, in his presence with the sufferer, the heavens are emptied. That Christ, by being the companion of the sufferer, has to come down from the cross and then the cross mm. is left empty. Wow. Why, why don't you read yeah, that sure. now that we've talked about it for six minutes? <laughs>
1: Obscurely occupied. You are the Lord of the maimed, the one bled and crucified in a cellar of some prison over which the day is breaking. You inspect the latest refinements of cruelty. You may even kneel down and wonder. They know their business, these grim fellows, whose wives and mothers rise for the early mass. You, yourself, must hurry back through the snow before they find your rightful place on the cross vacated. The few candles burning higher in your terrifying absence under the darkly magnified dome.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful.
1: Yeah. Especially, particularly in a culture like America. How... The image of Jesus has been used by the oppressors and the oppressed. Hmm. I mean, it's uh, so mm-hmm. t- to me that that's why I read that in that symbols. It feels yeah. like the 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 oppressors and the oppressed are claiming the symbol of Christ yes. for their own. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to me, he is like an Old Testament prophet here, hmm. saying, almost questioning God, hmm. like if if Christ on the cross the image in the in the dome under the dome there yeah is part of the cycle of violence then why does god continue to let religion play that part
0: you know you talked about learning to read scripture and bringing those tools then to the reading of poetry and so maybe there is a kind of poetic sensibility that has to be brought to the reading of scripture huh. so that we oh yeah don't misread the images or that you know, the, the images are given to us, but can um, – but aren't self-interpreting.
1: Yeah. I, um, mean, I mean, the best I – mean, you were talking about um, some people have the, the idea of, of well, just what's it about? Just tell me what it's about. Sure, yeah. And, and, you know, Flannery O'Connor said, basically, if I could tell you what it's about, I wouldn't write a story. Right. The story is what it's about. Yeah. Um, and I feel the same way about poems. Right. And it's unfortunate in the preaching of the Christian church that so many times the preacher feels that his job is to tell them what it's about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rather than to make the text come alive. Yeah. And the tensions in the text come alive, particularly in narrative passage. If you're breaking a narrative passage down to three points, then you're yeah. probably not making the passage come alive for your congregation. Right. You know, Nothing wrong with three points. I use that all the time when sure. I'm preaching. But, but it is sad that the preaching task is often seen as the um, – Boil this down into three declarative yeah. sentences. Um, alliterate if possible.
0: Right. As I was reading your poems the other day, it seemed as if a lot of them, or at least the ones that, that I was able to find, um, that they've arisen out of some moment of prayer or mm-hmm. spiritual reflection or spiritual struggle. Yeah. Um, so, After the Fact was one that I looked at, oh, and yeah. addresses God directly. Um, corpus. Yeah. Reflects on this experience of kind of waiting in the silence of God.
1: I'm religious, whether or not, if, if I were to suddenly not want to be religious, I don't think I could. Huh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I did. It's, it's just fundamentally who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. I go back to O'Connor a lot just because her essays were very important. Um, for me years ago in in trying to think about what does it mean to try to write literature and think Mm -hmm. about literature, even though she's not a poet. But uh, she was talking about the genre of the short story. She said, anyone in any art can get away with whatever they can get away with, Yeah. but no one's ever gotten away with much. (laughs) So you recognize if you're working within a genre there are rules, essentially. Yeah. And then she also said, um, you can only make live what you can make live. Yeah. That's not an exact quote, but um, the nature of what you i can make certain kinds of poems come alive hmm. but those are the things that i'm obsessed with and like thinking about and from for me early on the goal of life is is to know and love god hmm. and uh, eventually I'll, I'll try to get around to loving my neighbor <laughs> uh-huh. yeah but uh, it's uh, I mean, I was just a weird kid and I'm just a weird adult. So, yeah, these things are spiritual.
0: So you said that, um, I mean, you've always been a religious, you know, you oh were God, a religious yeah. kid. And so, so did those things, the the religious interest and the interest in poetry, grow up alongside each other? Did one feed the other? Did one emerge from the other? Or did the two compete with each other? I mean, or threaten one another? Or what? what kind of relationship... Was there between your interest in mm. things spiritual and your interest in poetry?
1: I was always interested in spiritual things. I mean, I remember being a kid, like six or seven years old, learning about infinity. Mm. And I attached, for some reason in my mind, the, the idea of infinity to God. Mm. And, and almost like the, the number infinity to God. You know? mm. And I remember loving to count. I would yeah. write numbers on pieces of paper, for like yeah. thousands, up to way into the thousands. Yeah. Is this common? Did you do that? Uh No. Okay. So it's <laughs> so maybe a weird tick, but I would also count in my mind. And I remember sitting out in the front front yard, like cross-legged, looking up at the sky and the trees behind my neighbor's house that, that sort of were in front of the railroad tracks. So I was looking at the trees around mm. fall time. I'm sitting in leaves. The trees are becoming... Their branches are becoming bare. Yeah. And I remember counting in my mind. I would just count one, two, three, four, six, like I was fascinated with numbers. Yeah. And I remember... thinking I'm going to try to count to infinity, uh, and I knew that I couldn't ever catch up with infinity, but in my mind, it was running away from me, and I was chasing it, Uh and that I wanted to at least catch a glimpse of it before it rounded the curve. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And to me, this was almost like some sort of spiritual thing. My first semester, I went to Princeton Seminary, uh, the day I graduate Baylor. We found out my mom has cancer, mm. and I'm supposed to do summer Greek up at Princeton. My mom was living on Long Island at the time. I went and lived with her and helped take care of her mm. as they were figuring out what kind of cancer it was. So, it starts seminary mm. um, September 2001, like mm. so just south of New York City. Oh my goodness! You know, yeah. so September 11th happens and everything, and. Um, uh, My mom sees the second plane hit from her office in the city. Hmm. Uh, um, so there's like a, a sort of general chaos feel. Yeah. But in my personal life, I'm still dealing with my mom's cancer.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm then um, in a car wreck with two friends in which I'm injured. I'm not hospitalized, but I, I, I'm living with a lot of pain. My knees are jacked. I'm doing physical therapy. But I find myself, my first semester of seminary, um, knowing my mom has a terminal cancer diagnosis, mm. my body is in pain, it hurts to walk, I'm going to physical therapy, and I end up just very depressed, and I couldn't think straight. Mm. So academic thinking feels linear. You're putting an argument together, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I could not think linearly. Yeah. And so I began to engage with literature at a level that I never had before. Mm. And so I'm rereading Faulkner, and I'm reading George Herbert, and I'm reading Flannery O'Connor. And I'm reading contemporary poets, and um, I start taking my writing more seriously. At that point, mm. I don't think I, I don't think I wrote myself out of depression, mm. but I certainly wrote myself through it. Yeah. At that point, the writing became a part of my spiritual life in a way that it hadn't been before.
0: It's interesting thinking about the role of suffering. Um in the emergence of, you know, that creative burst in your life. And thinking yes. back to what we're, we started talking about, Simic's biography. Oh. Um, is it more challenging? Is it more difficult to write good, happy poetry? You know, but it seems mm-hmm. like they're a- almost as if uh, you needed the language of poetry or mm-hmm. music or art to accommodate you know, the dimensions of the experience of suffering. And yeah. One thing that I wrote on several of the, the bottom of the Simic poems that you sent me was, you know, the kind of sort of the refusal of experience to be contained within words or concepts mm-hmm. or, um, you know, the intrusion of the absurd or, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the random or the tragic mm-hmm. um, that, you know, maybe you're alluding to and the things that won't sit fit within... Theological systems,
1: the irreducibility of of certain experiences, and f- yeah. and for me poetry is a theological act in that I often discover what I really believe in the writing of poems.
0: You want to read one or more of a couple of your poems? Yeah, that man, one. I'll read. That'd uh, be great.
1: Let's let's le- at least read more than just this one. I would like to have one that has a little something line in it, maybe. Yeah. Um, let's but this one's that, called then. Breath. You haven't heard this one, I don't think. No. About two and a half years ago, my dad was visiting us here in Nashville, and um, essentially dropped dead in our next to our at our dining table. Mm. Um, we it was after church. I'd gotten home, went and got us some food. My wife and my dad and I sat down. I reached across to gra- hold my wife's hand for the prayer. I looked to my left to, to hold my dad's hand, and he was slumped over the table. Mm. And I started shaking him, and I said, "Daddy, Daddy, Daddy." And his eyes just looked like they were staring off into nothing. Hmm. And he, I laid him down on the ground, and I'm going heart attack, stroke, seizure, heart attack, stroke, seizure. What is this? And sort of realize he's not breathing. And so I begin to do CPR. And and within two or three minutes, a neighbor, my wife has gone and gotten one of our neighbors who's helping me with CPR. And this woman comes in who I don't know. I didn't even know our neighbor. We'd met him once, but we knew he was a doctor. Some of my wife found him. She then, I could see the way she's moving around my dad's body that she knows the human body somehow or other. And she looks at me and she says, do you want me to take over? Because I was doing the chest compression still. And I said, absolutely. So we're standing there and I'm watching a neighbor I've met once doing the breathing. And this woman I've never met doing the chest compressions on my dad. Mm. I had been alone with him for two or three minutes. Just doing the chest compressions and saying, Dad, we're praying for you. Maggie's calling 911. I love you. We love you. Mm. Um, so the doctors then get there. They take him to the hospital. They don't. They can't get him back. They defibrillate him. And he's not coming back. Mm. But essentially, they get him to the hospital, and he codes four more times. So he essentially coded five times that day. Wow. And statistically, if you're my dad's age, he was 69 at the time, and if you have all these health problems, which he's, he's been plagued with, um, if you die five times, you don't come back. Yeah. you know, to get a, a sustainable heart rate is well below one percent. Apparently, mm. if you code five times, and to be cognitively functioning is even just off the charts. So, wow. Dad ended up being okay. Um, this poem grew out of that experience. Mm. Um, that's a that's a lot of a lot of setup, but the poem's called Breath. All of a sudden, you slumped out of life. Those bluest of eyes staring out to where form collapses, unaware in your awareness of the sudden blows, back against the floor, the cracking of sternum beneath my hands attempting to call you back from wherever it was you were wandering off to, forcing air into your lungs, the hum high pitch squeal, the call to clear electricity lifting you for a moment near resurrection. I hold your hand in the ER as you die again and again and again and again. Epinephrine, norepinephrine, vasopressin, amiodarone, propofol, fentanyl, a dozen more dripping, portacath in your neck, femoral line, Iv's snaked into both your arms, swan gans fish hooked through the heart's chambers, the plastic tube in your lungs jitters each breath. I sit beside your bed, hoping God might be bothered enough this time to answer a prayer.
0: Well, thank you for oh, um, thank you for reading that. Yeah. Um, what happens to that experience for you in the process of making it into a poem? Mm. I mean, you talked about writing your way through depression. Yeah. Is it, you know, an act of therapy? Is it... Um, are there things that become clear for you that weren't initially? Are there... And even, you know, I... um I mentioned this this question too on the the sheet that I showed you before, but you, I've I've been writing um, essays about a, a child that my wife and I lost, yeah. and one thing that occurred to me is that um, sometimes too, there's a losing of the experience in the technicalities of I think oh what this word be here or that word would be better, you know what I mean? Yeah, and you think actually oh wait this is actually at this moment, distancing me from the experience, or mm-hmm. um, there has
1: to be a distancing to happen yeah. for what you write not to just be a journal entry. Yeah, yeah, that's, for you, yeah. yeah. But for, that's something about the awareness of the reader hmm. um, for you to shape that and experience into an experience hmm. for the reader. There has to be a necessary distancing, um, if not from the emotional content of the experience, at least from the from the articulation of the experience. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. Um, hmm. And so when I was so when I was at St Andrews, I went over there less than a year after my mom died, hmm. and I tried to write all these poems about my mom and about the death of my mom, etc. And my advisor is a, a Scottish poet called Don Patterson. He's really, I mean, he's a he's a big deal over in Britain. But what was fascinating is he was able to. Um, to gather up all of the pastoral he could get to 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 say to me, hmm. you're you're still too close to that experience to write about it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he he honored the the pain of the experience and difficulty while saying it's not yet ready to turn into art. Hmm. And he had a very close friend who is an American poet who's more known in Britain um, called um, Michael Donaghy. Hmm. And Donaghy died um, early and suddenly at the age of I don't know if he's 50 or 52, and all these people were writing poems in honor of him. Hmm. And I think Don felt a little put off by some of that, because this was one of his best friends, but he couldn't write about it. Yeah. And it was only probably three to five years later hmm. that he wrote, and he wrote a really beautiful, long, probably the longest poem he's ever written um, about that loss and, and the experience yeah. of the loss. And so I think there's a certain distance from the experience that has to happen, that poem probably came closer to the experience, um, but I think um, the fact that I've I've waited years before to write about something that was that loaded mm. that I was somehow or other able to um, approach the form yeah. Um, with uh, with enough distance. Even still, I think it was probably a year after the experience that I wrote. But about my mother's death, particularly because I was early in my trajectory as a poet, it was probably six years after her death before I wrote a poem, well, maybe four, before I wrote a poem that I think would, would really stand up um, as an aesthetically strong poem about the experience of loss. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And there's still certain aspects of that experience that I have not been able to write about Hmm. successfully. Yeah. Yeah. I think when my mom died, um, you you learn something about the people that you love when you lose them Mm -hmm. that you didn't realize before they were gone. Oh, yeah. And um, I love that Simone Veil quote, uh, he who... ah, it's, you you cannot, it right yes, here. it's it's on that essay. Can you? He
0: who has not God within himself cannot feel His absence.
1: He who has not God within himself cannot feel His absence. Boom, Vay dropping a truth bomb. Oh us. my goodness! But that that idea of of, of the emptiness teaching you things, mm-hmm. um, and and I thought I feel that with God too. Yeah. So that's kind of what part of what got that poem off and running. Yeah, um, yeah, it's good. You want to read Corpus? Yeah, let's read Corpus. Corpus. When God is silent late at night, and I'm watching the shadows the moon makes against the walls, I wish sometimes for certainty. To know God like the fetal pig I dissected in high school, its legs tied back with twine on an aluminum tray. Flesh obedient to the scalpel As I separated skin from meat Meat from bone Living silence from the silence of death But I lie awake and listen instead To the wind-rustled leaves of the poplar To the quiet breaths my wife makes As she lies here sleeping And I pray or think to myself Which in these moments feels like prayer Oh, this is enough This is more than enough
0: In this episode, we've been thinking about the ways in which God is both beyond our knowing and has made himself known. And This is um, a topic which is touched on in Chapter 5 of Karl Barth's Dogmatics in Outline. I'm going to read a short section for you, and this is beginning on page 36. The chapter is God in the Highest. In view of what has been said so far, this in the highest means quite simply that he is the one who stands above us, and also above our highest and deepest feelings, our strivings, intuitions, above the products, even the most sublime products, of the human spirit. God in the highest means, first of all, recalling what was said earlier— He who is in no way established in us, in no way corresponds to a human disposition and possibility, but who is in every sense established simply in himself and is real in that way, and who is manifest and made manifest to us men, not because of our seeking and finding, feeling and thinking, but again and again, only through himself. It is this God in the highest who Has turned as such to man, given himself to man, made himself knowable to him. God in the highest does not mean someone quite other who has nothing to do with us, who does not concern us, who is eternally alien to us. God in the highest, in the sense of the Christian confession, means he who from on high has condescended to us, has come to us, has become ours. God in the highest is the God who shows himself to be the real God, and so the one who is in no way in our control, and who nonetheless, and just because of that, has taken us to himself. God is he who alone deserves to be called God, as distinct from all gods, different from all that exists otherwise, and yet... The one who has united himself to us if we say with the christian confession i believe in god or i believe on god we have to do with this
2: god the artist's creed is hosted by the rabbit room podcast network in cooperation with the college of theology and christian ministry at belmont university in nashville tennessee belmont university is a student-centered christian community providing an academically challenging education that empowers men and women of diverse backgrounds to engage and transform the world with disciplined intelligence, compassion, courage, and faith. Belmont offers dozens of engaging and innovative programs including the major in religion and the arts. Find out more at belmont.edu/theology. Significant support, including generous access to recording facilities, has also been provided by Lipscomb University. Learn more at lipscomb.edu. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.